Welcome Voltron fans, this is Mark Morell, your host for Let's Voltron, the official Voltron podcast. We are so excited because Season 7 is here! And of course, we still have three episodes left from Season 6 that we have to review, but by the end of this podcast, we are going to do a preview of Season 7. So, I gotta bring on my co-host, welcome Greg Tyler! Hello, Mark Morrell. Hello, fellow Voltron fans. Season 7 is out. Yes. Yes, it is. And it is outrageous. <laughs> you know, we got a chance to see Season 7 for the press reviews and stuff like that. So yep. we've been holding on to this for a while, and we've seen all the hype. We've seen what has been released out to the general public and everything, you know, and people just saying, I'm not ready for this. This is going to ruin me, all this kind of stuff. And finally glad that people are able to actually see it and see for themselves what's going on because it's a great season. That's right. If this season happened to ruin any of you, send us an email and let us know. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Hopefully it didn't. Hopefully you loved this season as much as we did. The cool thing is, you know, there were a lot of spoiler-free reviews that came out. They released these screeners to the press. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they're given an embargo. And, and what they're saying is, is that the Monday before the Friday that it comes out is when you're able to start releasing your spoiler-free reviews. Right. So it's really hard, and, and we're going to find out about that, just how hard it is, but it's really hard to write a review about a season without giving away anything. Yeah, that's why uh, I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, we talk about it beforehand so we can let it out as the season has been released. So uh, we spoil away, don't we? Yeah, and that's why it's so important that you know immediately following the release of a season on Netflix, uh, we're given the opportunity also to do some interviews with the cast and crew and talk about season seven in its entirety. Yep. We have somebody with us today that's going to help us through the last three episodes of season six. All right. And also a preview of season seven. Awesome. So I'd like to bring her back because she's been on the podcast before. She does a great job with us, and, and we love talking to her. She's from the UK, so we're going to welcome back Hypable writer Danya Abramo. Welcome back, Danya. Thank you, Mark. And I'm so glad to be back on and also back on at the same time as Greg, because sometimes when I come on, Greg isn't here. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes our, uh, our our paths don't cross, but they have today, and I'm really glad that they have. It's great to have you back on. Yeah, it's so great to be back on. And we're hoping that our paths cross in New York, too, if that's possible. Yeah, everything crossed. I will actually be in Washington, D.C. the weekend before New York Comic Con. I'm basically going out for some ice hockey-related stuff. You know, a little thing called uh, the Stanley Cup happened to be won by the team that I support. So I'm going Yay. out. Yeah, I'm going out to support them for their opening game. Uh, but it just so happens to be the same week as New York Comic Con. So all being well, if the sort of timing works out, I'll just get a train up from D.C. to New York. It only takes about two and a half, three hours to do that. And I'll come up for a, a day to just go and do everything Voltron related, which will be exciting. Uh, a little bittersweet, though, considering it'll potentially be the last official panel that they will do for Voltron Legendary Defender at, at one of these events. So Yes, that's a little sad. Yeah, which is why I kind of, when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, I'm not going to go to New York Comic Con this year. And then they announced, hey, 
season eight last season end of this year and i'm like right okay so i have to go to new york comic con i can't <laughs> i can't not go now so yeah. so we have something in common your number one hockey team won the stanley cup championship right yeah and my number one football team american football won the nfl championship that's the philadelphia eagles oh is that your team i saw all of like the celebrations after that with like yes. <laughs> just absolute carnage in the streets and it was like the most philadelphia thing that i think i've ever seen in my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it, it's fun having championship teams oh it is and it's so satisfying <laughs> <laughs> so greg yeah how many championship teams do you have? Um, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. What is a sport? <laughs> uh, not everybody's into sports, and we we recognize that. There's a lot of Ultron fans out there that really don't, you know, give two sheets about sports. <laughs> but you know what? I give two sheets that you give two sheets. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Very appreciated. <laughs> yeah. We are really excited about the the chance of getting to see you in New York for New York Comic Con and getting hyped up about the final season of Voltron Legendary Defender. No, I know. I, I don't know how I'm going to feel like, because the usual thing is to do like a screening of an episode. It isn't always the premiere episode and then like a Q&A panel. And I don't know what kind of emotional response I'm going to have to the fact that that might be the last screening in like a room of other Voltron fans that I'll potentially go to. And if we end up sitting near to each other again, which we always somehow end up doing at these panels anyway, uh -huh. I want to apologize in advance if I do burst into tears, even if whatever's <laughs> happening is an emotional, like... <laughs> Yeah, that'll be an involuntary response. I may just end up crying. <laughs> well, yes. Well, you made us cry with some of your recent stories. Uh, and I, I just like to point one out in particular where you wrote a little bit of a, a personal story about yourself. And it also caught the attention of Joaquin Dos Santos. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So after the Shira reveal... At San Diego Comic-Con, obviously it was twofold in that, like, they both revealed that he identified somewhere on the LGBT spectrum, but also that he had a degenerative muscle condition that was essentially a chronic invisible illness that would eventually mean that he would no longer be able to pursue his dream of space travel or working within the scope of the garrison and being able to do all of that stuff. And like, there's this intersection of my life in that I am also someone who identifies on the LGBT spectrum. And I also have a debilitating chronic condition that is invisible and leaves me in quite severe pain and unable to stand at times. And like, I basically sometimes can't eat, can't sleep, like, it's really difficult. And on that reveal, I just kind of was like, okay, I had like a really deeply emotional response to it anyway. And I kind of thought, you know what, this kind of thing deserves to be written about. 
because mm-hmm. it's not always that you get that kind of intersection of a character that you already gravitated to quite strongly suddenly becoming more intimately connected to like your life and your own personal experiences so I kind of just started writing I started writing almost immediately after hearing the news and I just poured everything out wow yeah I just kind of felt that like honesty was the most important part because you know it's not an easy thing to write about either but I just kind of tried not to think about it too much and just tried to like put my emotions out there mm-hmm. and it was it's one of the most difficult things mm-hmm. I think that I've ever written I've actually over the last couple of months written a few like really emotional pieces for hyperbole in like this way where I'm like why am I hiding parts of myself when reaching out and being honest in this way can also help others and maybe connect with them and make them feel more open about maybe talking about things and essentially like making a support network so it's kind of within the theme of like things I've been writing anyway but Mm -hmm. yeah I just had like this hugely emotional response to it that I was like I just I just have to get it down into words and I didn't know at first if I would actually be able to do it because I didn't know if I could do justice to how I actually felt but Mm -hmm. the response to it I'm still getting people reaching out now and it's just been hugely overwhelming but in the best possible way that's cool yeah um Chuck Wendig retweeted it or tweeted it out yesterday as well who um for anyone who knows like the Star Wars Aftermath trilogy like he is the writer of those books and and a ton of other books as well and I love his writing and to have him comment on something that I wrote and basically he also shared out my spoiler free review as well Hmm. and I was just like sat there in disbelief going this a this this a thing that's really happening? <laughs> this, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> like, am I actually seeing this? Is this like it, it's this weird intersection between like all these different aspects of like my fandom and my life that mm-hmm. I'm just like they're going, Wow, I can't believe like the amount of people who have like seen, responded and resonated with stuff that I'm writing, but I deeply appreciate it. I know that I haven't been able to like reply to everyone but my notifications have gotten to the point where i was 30 dms deep wow Wow. twitter couldn't keep up anymore so i've like kind of had to put a pause on those and my notifications are just non-stop so i'm finding it really difficult to keep up with everything but i am seeing what people are saying and it's just very deeply appreciated uh in so many ways because it's just yeah, it's really overwhelming, but I'm really, really thankful for it. And the fact that people uh, are connecting and, and liking what I put out there. It's an amazing article, and thank you for sharing that with us, with everyone. Yes, we really appreciate that. And I I guess this means that uh, you won't feel bad about, you know, writing your own personal truth from now on and knowing that people are going to still be able to respond well to it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely made me feel a little freer with, like, how open I can be about things. 
yeah, the response has just been so great. So yeah, hopefully that's something that I can continue to do um, and not feel nearly as uh, nervous next time about hitting publish on it. What you did out there on Hypable got a great response. And we're hoping that, you know, this podcast with you on it and talking about some of your favorite episodes from season six and a, and a preview of season seven is going to get a lot of response too. So one of the things that uh, you had said to me was if you ever do a review of the Black Paladins, I would like to be on it. Yes. And that was <laughs> almost immediately after the season. I said, you know, if you need someone, I would want to come up like, that episode still, even after watching season seven, like as a standalone episode, is still my favorite that they've done. It is a, a, couple, a couple of season seven ones may have come a little close, but still that one top. Like it shot straight to the top of my favorite episodes the second I finished watching it. Yeah, it's just one of those episodes that... It was the culmination of so many storylines mm -hmm. in the show. And it just was beautifully animated, beautifully scored. Everything about it was just, in a nutshell, everything that I've always loved about this show. And I was just like, wow, completely blown away. Just that one episode, I was like, oh my god, how are they going to top this? And then the next two episodes basically just built on top of it. And I'm like, mm -hmm. how are they going to get better than that? And then they did season seven. And I'm like, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I think the final season, they're all just going to sit in rocking chairs and twiddle their thumbs because they got to they they come down from this amazing high that they've had. <laughs> yeah. I guess we could probably say, how many times have you seen the Black Paladins? I've hit double digits at this point of that episode, and quite a few of those came before the season even released properly to everyone. Just because, like, I'd finish watching it and I'd be like, I could watch it one more time, right? And then I'd go back and watch it again. I don't know exact numbers, but I know that I've hit double digits at least. So, being that you're such a big fan of this episode in particular, do you think you can give an objective review of it? Uh, <laughs> I think I can. I mean, that's the that's the whole thing. Is I think it's just like thematically, there's just something about it that just really resonates with me mm -hmm. because it's just in terms of storytelling. I think that's the like gut punch for me. Is it just had that emotional impact across like everything in terms of like the multiple battles that are going on and all the converging points of of that and even like it spilling into the next episode as well like yeah <laughs> i think i can manage it <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well you've certainly seen it enough times to uh, to cover it in detail <laughs> yeah you would hope so right <laughs> So based on you being an expert of this episode, where do you think we should start in talking about how to review it? Oh, gosh. Because I haven't had a chance to listen to where you left off with the previous episode, which would have been The Colony, right? Is the one right before this? Yeah, basically, you know, we have formed Voltron. Mm -hmm. And we've got Lotor sh ships out there. Yeah. And a pod with Shiro in it. Yeah. And Lotor. Yeah. And then they 
basically are attempting to try and get to Shiro, but can't get anywhere near him. And then they open a wormhole. And that is kind of one of those moments, like even that, to start with, was one of those wow moments, because you don't expect that. The fact that they're able to open a wormhole in, in order to be able to jump, because we only really ever, when it comes to the ship, see Allura be able to do that. So then yep. that throws a whole other thing out there. But it gets easily explained by Allura right after yeah. that. <laughs> Where she's like, ah, yeah, well, it's got to be Hagar. <laughs> but how did she learn how to do this? Mm. Oh, I well, don't know. Maybe she went to Orion? Yeah. Well, it's not just that, but, you know, there's more to a wormhole than magic. There's also a Teladov, so... Right. Did she have one of those in her back pocket and was just waiting for the magic to be able to turn it on? Or uh, how did all right. that work? <laughs> yeah. It was nice that the writers gave us a quick explanation right after it happened so that, you know, we didn't have to guess too much. Yeah. yeah. But you kind of get then that little bit where they sort of jump through the wormhole and you've got that almost uh, desperation from Keith in that, he knows that something's not right, but he doesn't want to give up. There's such a difference in the Keith in this season from the Keith that we've known through previous seasons, who was absolutely not ready to lead, absolutely not in a position where he felt comfortable with that or comfortable making decisions or guiding them as to what they need to do. And from when he returns uh, with Crolia, you just kind of see that huge difference in him. And particularly in this moment where he very quickly assesses the situation, realizes that they're not all going to be able to make it through the wormhole and decides to be like, OK, disband Voltron and propel me through the wormhole. I will do what I can to bring Shiro back. And... It's just this like huge moment with him individually of he would do anything, not just for Shiro, but for pretty much anyone on that team to keep them safe. And you see that later with like how equally desperate he is to get back to them. Mm -hmm. But he is in that position now where that's his family. You know, he's been reunited with Crolia, he has his blood family, but the Paladins as a whole, that Team Voltron, is for all intents and purposes his entire family now. They've gone through so much together, and it's just, it's such a nice progression of his character. Do you recommend two years on the back of a space whale with your family and maybe a, a pet? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> apparently that does wonders for you. For uh, for settling you in your own skin, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, going back to that, like, very, very briefly, Keith has never really known a family. He's always wondered about that. He's always felt kind of almost abandoned or alone. And I feel like that time spent with Crolia, like, kind of reaffirmed in him this sense of, belonging that sense of it wasn't because he wasn't wanted and that's equally then reaffirmed in how they respond when Keith returns and 
just in his relationship with the paladins and Team Voltron in general, like they do, they always have wanted him around. So yeah, it's just really nice mm. to see this kind of Keith that's more settled in himself. Yeah. <laughs> so from the time that Voltron tries to get in through the what what kind of a wormhole is it when it's Hagar's wormhole? A bad wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's purple, okay? Yeah, from the time that Voltron tried to go through Hagar's wormhole to, you know, finding out that they could only really get one lion through and the rest of the team being left behind, they have no idea where Keith is. Right. But they're just hoping that he comes back. And he doesn't have the ability to come back through a wormhole. So he's going to have to come back the long way. Right. But the good news is, is that anybody else who wants to come back has to come back from the same location. And that involves Lotor and his team. Right. Before we find out that Lotor even has a team, (laughs) (laughs) he's getting carried over there by the Shiro clone. And at... Hagar's orders. So once they get back to Hagar's ship, what would you like to say about that that scene? It's almost a long time coming. We've always had the sense that like Lotor knew that Hagar and Anova were the same person, but you know, altered through quintessence. Seeing him have to actually face that point blank this is the reality of his situation and how he deals with that. And the fact that he has like a full backup plan that he's had in play the entire time was so very Lotor. But it also sets up the later scene where they kind of use Zarkon against him as well, in that he has very complicated feelings about his own family his own identity. Like, he doesn't like being kind of connected to the Galra in any way. Mm-hmm. And so he has, like, this weird, complicated relationship with Hagar, who has now reassumed the identity of Anova. So it was just this really interesting thing where she's trying to reconnect with him now that she's sort of free of some of the influence of the quintessence and has regained some more of her sense of Altean self and trying to work alongside Lotor for whatever means that she needed that knowledge from Oriand. Lotor obviously had taken that work and continued it on. And it was just this really interesting sense of like she wants to reconnect now that she's basically in full control of herself but Lotor is so damaged that relationship is so damaged at that point that he's just not interested he has his own plans his own thing that he wants to do with that knowledge that he has and it doesn't involve her it's never involved her Mm -hmm. except for trying to take her out. It was just a really interesting confrontation that uh, the groundwork had been laid like really subtly through the previous seasons for that in like how complex his familial connections have always been. Right. The two times that we see Lotor get 
uh, riled up in this episode are both when he gets compared to one of his parents. In this scene that we're talking about, when Anerva says, you know, you've taken what I wanted to do and carried it through, you know, to a greater extent than I could have ever imagined, he flips out and, you know, he rejects her and says, you know, beg for mercy, I might let you live someday, you know, at a critical moment. And then when Allura basically says, you know, uh, you're just like your father, perhaps worse, or, you know, that that sort of a thing, then he loses it there, too. So I think it's very interesting, and it really does sort of uh, build on what you said there, Donya, about uh, the complex relationship that Lotor has with each of his parents. Oh, you even see it with uh, Ezor somewhere down the line when Zethrid's talking to Ezor and says, oh, I stopped trying to figure out Lotor's plan a long time ago. It's too complicated. <laughs> you know, and that's exactly what Lotor is, because, you know, how do you how do you follow somebody who just it you never know what they're planning on doing? And who's so very much guided by his own emotions like Lotor wants to give this sense of being in control of himself and in control of situations and being quite calm and composed but he is probably one of the, underneath it all, one of the least composed. If you find that sort of pressure point with him, which is Zarkon or Hagar slash Onerva, and you push on that, he loses it. Mm -hmm. So he is so highly guided by his emotions that it's very, very difficult to pin him down because anything could trigger that. Because it doesn't even have to be a direct comparison. It could even be a vague comparison to either of them. And he just will fly off the handle or shut down and be like, nope, that's it. You're essentially dead to me. And now I am actually going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Moving through here, uh, obviously Keith is doing everything possible that he can to get to Shiro or the clone Shiro. He still doesn't understand what's going on. Right. And he hasn't even been around to experience a lot of what his uh, fellow paladins have experienced. So that's right. He has less reason to believe that there's anything, you know, wrong with Shiro fundamentally. Which in the end is the best thing, because if one of the other paladins was going after him, they would say, well, this isn't Shiro. This is obviously not Shiro. Why should I even waste my time on this? Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> I would say that a lot of their friendship kind of plays so heavily into this, like how connected that they've been since prior to starting the Voltron adventure. You know, we've always known that they've had a friendship that has spanned longer than Shiro returning to Earth and then them setting off and becoming paladins. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in terms of the best person to be able to kind of bring him back in some way, it, it always would have had to have been Keith. Because that connection, that friendship, which has gone through tests and challenges and friction and, and points and ups and downs, has always been one of the friendships that for me has been the most interesting and one of the ones that I've always wanted to know more about, just because mm -hmm. it just, like, their dynamic has always been really interesting to me because it's bordered on this, like, mentor-mentee, like, relationship, but it's almost flipped in some ways in that Keith very often does the saving 
rather than the power balance always being in Shiro's favor. So it's this really interesting flip of that power dynamic and that kind of usual role that you see in that mentor-mentee kind of relationship. So it's just this really interesting dynamic between the two of them that's I've always been fascinated seeing how they play with it because mm-hmm. it just flips so many tropes mm-hmm. on its head. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've always really enjoyed with Voltron is that it takes these ideas, these kind of stereotypes and tropes and typical relationships that you would expect and then it twists them slightly or it just takes takes it off its axis just ever so slightly and makes it something new. And this is one of the relationships that I've always thought they've done really well with. So just seeing it play out with also those little flashes back to how they met and how it started was just such an interesting choice mm-hmm. here. Because obviously that's not Shiro. So Keith is basically trying to play to that emotion and that emotional connection that they have that friendship that they've had and it's just not there because there's this this barrier to entry in that that's not Shiro so it's this really interesting to and fro that you've got where Keith is very highly emotional and trying to reach out to someone who isn't there mm-hmm. it's just Literally. yeah it's so emotional and trying to like see him pull back when obviously the clone Shiro is really cruel. That whole thing, you can see why Keith kind of flies off the handle ever so slightly in those scenes where they're fighting because Shiro is cruel in this scene. But it's this kind of weird disconnect that you have between Keith trying to appeal to a part of Shiro that he thinks is still in there deep down, but also trying to be realistic in trying to keep both of them alive. So here's a question. Mm. Is Shiro still in there? I mean, at the very end, isn't he? I mean, when Keith does the whole, and I know I'm jumping ahead a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. But you, you know what I mean? At, yeah. At, toward the tail end when, you know, he um, disarms Shiro. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he seems to have that moment of realization at that moment. So, Uh, Is Shiro really gone? The way that I kind of read it is that it's very much that Winter Soldier, like if anyone's familiar with Marvel, Captain America, Winter Soldier thing. Yeah. The Winter Soldier also has a trigger word that essentially puts him under and in the complete control of the person who programmed him. I feel similarly that in order to infiltrate the Paladins, that Shiro had to have the memories of the Shiro that had been with them. Otherwise, if he returned eventually, which he does, he wouldn't have those memories. He wouldn't know. He wouldn't have those connections. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it was what Keith did in basically reminding him of their relationship and then saying, you know, I love you is that he breaks through that brainwashing almost. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a real sense of 
if they've given this Shiro the memories of the original Shiro, there had to be a trigger point at, at some point from the other side that would maybe break through. Because you can't imagine that there's just nothing at all. So I yeah. think it's just really complicated rather than being straightforward, just a clone, no memories, no connections at all. It was just a matter of finding the right way through. They always say that love of all kinds can conquer all. It was just a really beautiful moment because however you take that line, it, it could mean a million things to a million different people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, love is powerful. All kinds of love. And however you read into that is entirely valid. But, you know, in in the scope of the show, it's, you know, a love between two friends who, like, found each other so long ago and have basically chased each other across the universe and saved each other countless times. Oh, speaking of saving people, uh, on the other side of this this whole episode, Pidge saves everyone again. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she had to go through through some emotional pain there with Shiro based on, you know, the fact that when she first was downloading Galra data into his arm, she had recognized certain things that were going on. And at that time, she decided that she had to build a virus based on that, you know, just as a fail safe, because, I mean, she's dealing with a Galra arm, Galra tech and all that kind of stuff. So she had to be careful. She never thought she would have to use it because it was Shiro. Yeah. And now that this Shiro isn't the real Shiro, then she realized I have to use it. Yeah, that equally was super emotional to me because Pidge is another character who has such a hugely emotional connection to Shiro. And knowing that through the entirety of the show, all the way back to season one, she's had this knowledge that she has programmed this to be able to use at any point should anything go wrong. When you then go back and rewatch the show and their interactions, knowing that you know that, knowing that that's what she's going through as well, you know, you read some of their interactions slightly differently and you wonder how much guilt she might have felt up until this moment of like having that almost validation of being like, okay, I was right to have this in place. I hoped I wouldn't have to have used it, but it was the right choice, you know. But you would have to imagine that up until that point, she would have had quite a lot of guilt weighing down on her. Yeah, it's like Batman with the Justice League, you know, how he has the knowledge of the weaknesses of every single one of the Justice League members, and he's got something in his utility belt to pull out just in case he needs to. Yeah. If we want to jump media to the comic book series, it's very similar to what was established in the comics when uh, Pidge was facing off against, I forget the name of that, that uh, creature that could disguise as a ziggurat. But uh, she had developed a dossier on each of the paladins with their strengths and weaknesses. And uh, the paladins discovered that during that story. And she said, you know, uh, yeah, I guess it is a little weird, but it's just how I am. The fact that she took that to the next level with Shiro really sort of uh, gives even more weight to that comic book. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And vice versa. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And even more so because obviously 
Pidge has always had that connection to Shiro as well because of the Kerberos mission, you know. When she obviously reunites with Shiro when he returns to Earth, you have that immediate kind of like thread linking him back to her father and Matt. And also further than that, the fact that he is the re- the entire reason why Matt is still alive in the first place and able to escape, that again further complicates their relationship because the, she's almost, I guess, indebted to Shiro in some ways as well because he saved her family. So there's just so many layers to that entire scene that connects into this Shiro story without Shiro physically being there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the end of this episode then. After they fight and he says, I love you. And then he gets this, I don't know, what do you call this? This Galra power. He, he gets like the cat's eyes and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, me too. What do we call that? Is that coming from the fact that he's a paladin and it's the lions coming through him and the Bayard reacts to that? Or is this part Galra stuff? So it's Galra I, to me. Yeah, I read it as being uh, part Galra. Like, uh, you would have to imagine that maybe being away for two years with his mother made him far more settled into his identity in terms of being part human, part Galra. And so it's almost like losing a little bit of control over the human side of him and equally having to come back to himself and snapping himself back to that because he's more maybe in tune with that other side of him. I feel like in getting to know his mother, he probably also got to know more about that side of him, more so than he probably did when he was with the Blade of Marmora because they had so much downtime when they were traveling. You know, with the Blade of Marmora, it was always go, 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 go on missions. He never really had that opportunity to settle into that side of him. I feel like that's why it comes out slightly more here, when his emotions are really heightened, because he's a little bit more in tune with that. So when he loses control slightly, it sort of comes through a bit more. I was reminded of Lotor, when he was facing the white lion at Orient, you know, I mean, his instinctive Galra uh, nature sort of kicked in and he became much more aggressive and, and feral. And I really saw the same thing here with Keith. And it makes me wonder with all these plot threads that span multiple seasons, if we're going to see a showdown between Lotor and Keith. I mean, we've had this through line throughout the series where Keith has it in for Lotor. I mean, he's never really trusted him. And now they are much more similar than they have ever been. You know, half Galra, half non-Galra. They've had family uh, family issues. <laughs> and uh, I-, I wonder if this is going to uh, uh, culminate in a big uh, sort of a show, you know, showdown or something next season. All right. But before all that, coming at the end of this, you know, Keith's trying to hold on. He's, he's got the Shiro clone. He's holding onto its hand and they're both dangling. And then he has to let go and they're falling. And then he starts getting, you know, images in his head. Yeah, flashing back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To everything that Shiro meant to him, like... Oh, man. This was a massive thing for me because it's always been one of those moments of, like, how did they meet? 
How did they get to know each other? And you obviously get a little bit more of that next season that plays off these scenes and expands on them a little bit more and gives them slightly more context, which was really smart of them to have threaded them in here. So it was really interesting to see where that started, which is basically Shiro visits Keith's school from what it looks like potentially as like just an ambassador for the garrison in terms of like attempting to recruit people or start recruiting people. You see a flash of them next to a hover bike, which as we know, uh, Keith used it all the way back in the first episode. Mm-hmm. And also a scene where you get a little bit more of a sense of the start of that relationship between Shiro and Keith, which was more along the lines of Shiro just recruited him and vouched for him and was like, hey, we want him in the garrison. So he gets into what appears to be, at this point, a fight. He's been called in and Shiro has been told to, like, get this kid in order. He's out of control. And you get that, the start of that, I won't give up on you, but also don't give up on yourself. It was just like these three really interesting flashes back to where those two started and how far they've come. It's just really interesting because like, there's been so much speculation about how that relationship even came about, how they met, what that meant, how it happened, because we've always seen the later stages of the friendship. So yeah, it was just really, really interesting to me. And that's how the episode ends. With <laughs> you don't know what happens to him. Well, yeah. part of what I think I gave this a double whammy sense of a emotional sort of uh, response in the viewer is the fact that not only are we seeing all of this for the very first time, but we're seeing it in flashback and when and and often in drama when you see your life flashing before your eyes, it's about to end. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I mean, these guys are falling to a planet and bam, this is when you see it. So it really, it's a it's it's a big deal for multiple reasons. Yeah. But the good news is, is we can watch all good things right after this. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Because we're binging it. <laughs> yes. And there's no way, even if I had somewhere to go right after watching this episode, there was no way I was going to turn this next one off. <laughs> Especially with all good things, because the phrase is, all good things must come to an end. And we're seeing those two fall to a planet. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hilariously, that's what I titled my season six review. I think it was like, all good things must end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was what I titled my season six review, which was playing off um, these last three episodes. <laughs> wow. Nice. Mm. Yeah. So the good news is, is that All Good Things starts off, and like you said before, Danya, you would have watched, you know, all of the Black Paladins and the first part of All Good Things, and it would have all flown together really nicely, right? Yeah. Because we get into that consciousness of Black Lion. Which, this entire scene is beautiful. Like, just, I've always loved when they've gone to, like, that astral plane the sort of purple overlay that they've had on everything mm-hmm. and just how they play it. It's just visually is really appealing and also just stunning. And yeah, this entire scene having like just come off the back of that 
incredibly emotional episode with the Black Paladins, you then get the reveal dropped on you that actually way back when Shiro originally disappeared, he did, as many suspected, die. So you go from that emotional response in the Black Paladins to this emotional response of having to reconcile the fact that Shiro didn't actually survive that encounter. And it's this huge sense of, at least I felt, and I know that I mentioned this in my review as well, like delayed grief. Because even though Shiro has been there, you then realize that it's not the same Shiro. And so you have to, in a very short space of time, mourn the fact that that Shiro was gone. It's like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You don't really know whether the cat is dead or alive, but by opening the box, you'll find out. Yeah. Heading onto the astral plane, we find out mm-hmm. that, yeah, Shiro did die. His consciousness has been in the Black Lion. That scene that we saw where he tried uh, reaching out to Lance to warn them. Yeah, you kind of find out that that was him trying to be like, hey, I was trying to like warn you guys that that's not me. But it was really difficult because that connection wasn't as strong, so it didn't come through as clearly. It was a little muddled and a little muted, and so it didn't really connect in the way that he wanted it to. Which obviously then leads to a huge moment of guilt for Lance later, as he was the one who sort of initially realized that something wasn't quite right. But yeah, it all just kind of comes together here. And then he sort of fades away again. And Keith is kind of left waking up on the floor of the Black Lion, who managed to save both of them from the fall. Yeah, he had mentioned before he fades away that he had tried to let everybody know that the current Shiro was an imposter. Yeah. They didn't have the connection. And that was with Lance. Right. Yeah. Now that he's with Keith, he does have that strong connection because they're both black paladins. Yeah. And they kind of like each other. Well, they they (laughs) have a much longer history than Lance and Shiro had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that friendship plays quite heavily into that emotional connection. And also, I would say in part as well, because both of them have a connection back to the Black Lion as well, you know, that helps to connect them even more so on the astral plane and yeah so it's just that really interesting thing that it took such a heightened emotional moment to like really push through and have them able to connect back in that way so yeah oh that whole thing the black paladins through to this first little bit and then a late like, like there's a later scene as well where keith goes back to the astral plane again just Mm -hmm. all of that is just a huge huge hugely emotional thing i was reminded a little bit of the empire strikes back where luke is hanging off of the antenna underneath cloud city and he's calling out to ben to help him ben doesn't show up here keith is in desperation calling out to shiro for help and Shiro shows up. So I, I really like the, the, the similarity in the setup, but it's very, very different in how it plays out. Yeah. 
it's really difficult knowing what happens in season seven as well. Like coming back and talking about these three episodes then separately because there's a lot of what you learn in season seven that also plays back in here. Like it's going to be really interesting for a lot of people coming back and rewatching this with the knowledge that you get from from season seven, particularly the premiere episode. It's mostly just knowing that there are some people in Shiro's life who at certain points have had this kind of emotional pressure put on them where they've been able to step away. But here, neither one of these characters is willing to give up on the other. And you also see that play out in season seven as well. Oh, yeah. Big time. It's just such an interesting continuation of this particular storyline echoing mm-hmm. through into season seven. It's it's great. Like, without going too much into it to spoil it too much, it's just, like, thematically, it resonates and echoes through into season seven as well, which is great. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the thing about these last two episodes of season six, All Good Things and Defender of All Universes, is that they have so much action in them and it it sort of flows together you know pretty smoothly but before we get to the biggest action of all there has to be a little bit of a discussion between Lotor and Alora again yes (laughs) yeah yeah so Keith he has basically found out that he's in the Black Lion with the Shiro clone and he's got to make his way back to the team. Yep. The thing about it is, is we already found out that Lotor and his generals are already on their way back to where the castle ship was. Because they want to go through that gate again to the quintessence field. Yep. And so it's all a matter of timing. Like, how can Keith get back? Because without Keith, they can't form Voltron. Right. But he's further behind because he's obviously between the fight with Shiro plus having been on the astral plane plus however long he was lying on the floor of the black lion yes <laughs> like, so he's a little bit behind he's a little yeah. bit like Lotor and, and his generals may have had like a little bit of a head start on him there yeah now he had a two-year head start but uh, that's not quite going to help him here yeah <laughs> And Hunk does the math for the people back at home. You know, the last time we went up against, there were five of us and only two of them, and he he kicked our butt. And this time, there's three of him and only four of us. So where does that leave us? And, and of course, (laughs) Lance has to say, you know, we don't want to do math right now, especially when it involves us getting our our butts beat. Yeah, (laughs) which was such a great Lance moment. I love that little bit of him, like because it's kind of like, please don't it's it's that kind of like don't never tell me the odds moment yes exactly i love that so basically they destroy the gate and they think well uh lotor can't go into the quintessence field now so we've we've done it right but we're still probably going to have to face him right yeah Mm -hmm. and when they face him boy oh boy the words between lotor and alora huh oh yeah Lotor, like, it's very hard to know when he's being sincere and genuine. 
because he's very, very, very good at manipulating a situation and people's emotions to suit him. And because he very often switches and changes his alliances and and who he's willing to work with and who he trusts, you know, it's really hard to really kind of like put any stock into what he's actually saying. So when he starts trying to appeal to this part of Allura that perhaps had felt genuine affection and may have been on the way to actually like properly falling for him, it's so well done in the way that he tries to manipulate those emotions because he's playing on that part of Allura that he's like, you know, we're on the same side. I want to like bring peace through this uh, power of quintessence, like unlimited quintessence and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, he tries to appeal to the side of her of like ruling over a new Altea and, and all that sort of thing and doing it together. But she knows better now. Yeah. Allura <laughs> is not one to be fooled twice. Right. Lotor got to her the first time and she fell for it. And you have that really hugely emotional moment between her and Lance as well. Right. Where she feels so much guilt about that, about the fact that, you know, she basically handed to Lotor all of the knowledge of Oriand and being able to basically give him the ability to do everything that he can with these ships. You know, she has that moment and Lance in such a, like, it's such a beautiful moment between the two of them where he reassures her and they hug each other. And he's basically like, you know, Lotor fooled all of them, not just her. And, you know, like that, that thing where he's like, take it from someone who's made, a million, a million mistakes. mistakes. All you can do is get back up and try again. Yep. It's that thing of like fail, fail more, fail harder, get better kind of thing. You know, you only ever learn by by failing. And the Lance in that moment as well is someone who has made mistakes, who has failed, but has learned from them and come so far as well. Because he's the one who recognizes in Allura that she's not dealing well emotionally it's very much that being able to set aside his own feelings and emotions and step into that position that is required of him with Keith not there, the right hand of Voldron, like for all intents and purposes, like as the paladin of the red line, like he's in charge when Keith is not there. That's right. That's that kind of role that he needs to step into. And it's never more evident than this particular moment because he puts Allura's feelings and well-being ahead of him and he basically takes care of her to the point that they can go back out and function. And I feel like that moment plays really beautifully into the moment where Allura and Lotor confront each other again because that helps her sort out those emotions before she has to deal with them with Lotor in front of her again. Right. So it basically sets her up to be able to galvanize herself and say, no, you can't take advantage of me again. It, it just those two moments I feel play like really well off each other. And just seeing Allura do that whole moment of like, no, 
and then going full on assault and attacking him like that was that was really cool yes so there's a couple of subplots in here uh the main plot i guess is the fact that uh, lotor and his generals are coming back to that gate area and the the paladins are there to try to stop him yes but the the subplot with the castle ship okay it is in need of repair it needs to get back from almost getting shut down completely and almost you know having the teledav blow it up but Karan's, you know desperately trying to get the the ship back in order with the help of hunk and pidge and crowley and whoever else can help but at one point he finds his grandfather's toolbox pop yes. pop wimbledon yes and we get a history, more of a history of this castle ship before what ends up happening to the castle ship at the oh. end of the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this setup of, here's, here's the history of the castle ship and what Karan's grandfather did. And just having that, and then, of course, the Nunville, 10,000-year-old Nunville. Yeah. <laughs> that, that'll blow anything up. It was a good deck of feed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that was part of the subplot but you know after you know laura says the thing about lotor's you know father and everything that just pisses lotor off to no end and he can't wait to destroy the lions now yeah and of course that makes zethrid happy but i love how collected and in control lotor feels until someone pushes his buttons and then he completely loses his cool and flips out. And this was so awesome. Yeah. Like I said before, I I thought the range that AJ Locasio had with Lotor's character was, was pretty evident pretty much in these two final episodes of season six. Oh yeah, definitely. Like it's, it was so, so well done because it was basically turning on a dime. Like he went from zero to a hundred so fast. Mm -hmm. And the fact that like, you can tell that that switch has been flipped in him, not just by the expression on his face, but like that cool kind of icy tone of his voice where he's basically lost it, but he almost shuts down that part of him that feels to the point where instead he's channeling that pure Golra sense of himself, mm-hmm. which just wants to wipe out that, that source of conflict for him. And there's so much focus, though, on Altea and his Altean side. And it's this really interesting juxtaposition against the fact that what he's actually doing in this moment is the most Galra that we've ever seen him in terms of what we know of the Galra with their ruthlessness and desire to conquer and rule and basically have this huge show of power. But the focus of that is in wanting to bring back Altea and the fact that he is the savior of the Alteans and that he wants to be the only thing that Altaeans know. He doesn't want them to remember Alphor or Allura or Voltron or the Lions. He basically wants to be their sole purpose and like rule over them and basically restart the Altaean Empire with him at the head of it. 
Yeah, but was it called Altaian Empire before? No. Or was it just called Altea? It was just Altea, but he basically right. he basically is like, I, I'll start a new Altean Empire. And it's like, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I mean, he's really power hungry. And, and like we had established in our last podcast, he wants to be godlike almost to yeah. all of these Alteans. But he was willing to use Alteans to save Alteans. What's not to say that he's willing to use Altaians again in his new empire? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, no, he absolutely would. You know, he almost lives in, like, this idea of, like, he's willing to sacrifice one life if it means saving hundreds or millions or thousands. It's the trolley problem, essentially. Like, are you willing to kill one person to save more or, you know, will you leave the trolley going down the same tracks and kill the more people? Like, it's that kind of moral dilemma. But, like, for him, he would sacrifice all of them if it meant that he gained something else. You know, he doesn't have that almost moral compass that we would, wherein we would feel very conflicted about the taking of a life. You know, he doesn't necessarily have that as long as in his mind it's justified. That's that sense that you get in how he wants to rule as well. Yeah, there's a there's a very big moral dilemma. If you start to say, yes, it's okay to kill a few people to save millions, then you're going to keep saying that all over and over and over again every time a few people need to be killed to save millions. Yeah. Yeah. If you go with the, the moral standpoint that I'm not going to kill anyone, despite the fact that, you know, hundreds of millions may die, then you're always going to, you know, go into a plan trying to save everybody, but not killing anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really interesting, because that's essentially like trying to save everyone is essentially the motto of Team Baldron. Like, that's what they want to do. They want everyone to be free and able to make their own choices and rule their own planets and manage their own cultures and, and stuff like that. And they don't want to end lives in order to achieve that as a last resort, always, right. in terms of, like, if they have to take someone out, that's kind of, like, when they've been pushed to that. They would always, even when it's someone that they're up against that's a villain that is threatening the rest of the galaxy, it's always capture or hold or or something like that it's never the immediate responses to kill whereas with loto he doesn't have those qualms and cough cough nardy cough yeah <laughs> yeah didn't even think twice about nardy no not at all so yeah it's that juxtaposition between team voltron and how they feel versus team loto <laughs> which is just him <laughs> Yeah. at that point by the time he ejects his generals and is like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done yeah. with you. And they're done with him. They were done with him when he started saying, I'm going to make sure that nobody remembers anyone, including all the Galra. I'll get rid of all the Galra. Yeah. Well, they're part Galra too. Yeah. So that means them. So they immediately start thinking, okay, we've had enough with him. He's gone over the deep end. We're done. But, of course, he ejects them out. Yeah. 
Whoopsie. So now he's got his own three ships that combine together into one super robot like Voltron, except better. There is nothing better than Voltron. Perish the thought. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if somebody was going to disagree with me. Uh That's right. But in the Paladin's eyes, he appears better, faster, stronger. (laughs) Insert Daft Punk song here. (laughs) Uh, I was thinking of Lee Majors, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. And at that point, then it's just him against four lions. And of course, they can't wait for the castle ship to be up and running again. And of course, eventually with the, the help of Pop-Ups Nunville, we do get the castle, at least one engine of the castle ship running again. Yeah. And then the castle ship fires on this new robot that Lotor has built. And it seems to work in the beginning, but then Lotor is able to push his you know, bolt back and fire his own bolt. Yeah. How does that work? It's like a laser bolt, uh, hitting laser bolt and shoving both of them right back at the castle's throat. Yeah. Yeah. That was the moment for me where I was like, oh, this thing is powerful. And there was this sense of like, I wasn't sure how they were going to be able to win this one. And how they actually did manage to address that dilemma of the fact that Lotor's ship is actually more powerful than them. You know, Voltron, in my heart of hearts, and I'm sure the heart of hearts of of many of us is still better, but there's no denying that what they were up against was something that was faster, had abilities that they don't have, and has this raw power to it that was really hard to counteract. And so I was, I was a little bit like, wow, how are they going to get out of this one? Well, the best way would be for Keith to show up and they could form Voltron. (laughs) That sounds like a segue. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, we find out that Keith, you know, all it has to do is, is scream really loud for Shiro, and all of a sudden he's in that astral plane again in, in Black Lion's consciousness and talking to the essence of Shiro, and Patient Shield's focus helps him connect with the lion's eyes. Yes. And there you go. And, and in doing so, he's able to get to them faster. Once he eventually does get there, though, uh, he's got those extra wings that we saw on the hyperphase Voltron. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we first saw it uh, during the battle against Zarkon that ironically killed Shiro. Right. And this black lion goes, you know, straight through Lotor's robot. And that kind of messes up Lotor just enough for them to be able to form Voltron. But then that's the end of the episode again. Yeah. <laughs> so for the second time this season, We've ended an episode with forming Voltron. Yeah. And also on like an episodic cliffhanger. Like they've done, they did it. Like these last couple all ended on like cliffhangers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Which was really, it's a really interesting choice because even though you've got people who binge watch the entire season, there are some people who take episodes one at a time. So it makes it really difficult to stop <laughs> and take a break. You just have to keep going through. (laughs) Yeah, it does make it difficult, but, you know, we have to make this sacrifice for our favorite show. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's such a sacrifice. Yes. Sitting down and just watching the whole thing. (laughs) It it royally sucks to watch a show that you love. (laughs) 
I have to say it's a little bit easier on you when you only have six or seven episodes at a time to, to get through. But getting through season seven was a little bit harder, you know, to get through all 13 in one chunk. So I had to kind of split it up into two chunks. I did too. Did you have to do that, Danya? <laughs> Yo, I was walking through the door from my day job when uh, I got the screeners <laughs> come into my email and I essentially just grabbed some bottles of water and uh, made myself something really quick to eat and literally sat through the entire thing start to finish. Wow. Yeah. What time, what time did you finish? About, so I started at about 630 so it was about 11-ish okay. in the evening by the time I finished. So at least I was still in bed by midnight, sort of. Wow. <laughs> by the time I'd finished, like, like sitting after the end credits of the last episode had rolled, like, not still sitting slack-jawed going, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, we have to finish with Defender of All Universes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We start off, of course... Voltron is faced off against Lotor's robot, and it's a battle. It's a battle right away, and battle after battle after battle. I mean, just endless battles in this one. Yeah, except for a quick aside where Keith launches the speeder with Shiro in it and gets it to the castle. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Even before they get into the fight, yeah, he, he launches Shiro's uh, clone back to the castle. Yep, in the speeder, the Black Lion speeder. At one point, we see Krolia and Karan putting him in some kind of stasis or something. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, what did you think of these battles with Lotor's robot? Big, bold, beautiful. <laughs> those are <laughs> those are some great words to describe it. I think the battles in in season six were all really solid. Like they were all very, very, very well done. And you could tell that a lot of time and a lot of care had been spent into, like, pouring into these last three episodes in terms of the battles specifically, because they were just so well choreographed and executed. But particularly this this last battle, like, is such a prolonged sort of fight that you're just, like, they're going, you almost can't catch your breath because yeah. you're just sitting there watching it going... Wow. Now that I've seen this over and over again, I see it broken out into three phases. Okay. The first phase is they just fight Lotor and he's faster and they they have to really get a way to back him into a corner. So they back him into a corner and then he starts doing this disappearing thing. And that's phase two where he's disappearing into the quintessence field and going back and forth and coming back even stronger because he's got the quintessence and they're finding it even harder to fight him. But then he goes into the quintessence and stays there. And then they realize that they need to go into it and fight him there. So phase three is in the quintessence field. And then like, there's a, a fourth problem at the end, of course, when, you know, all those, open time and space pockets that he's opened uh, need to get destroyed. Right. Yeah. But there's three phases of the battle in my mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that because it's it's basically, yeah, it's like that final boss battle almost where, like, you think you've beaten one part of it, but then they kind of, it kind of, like, uh, evolves. Right. And you're like, oh, no, 
I barely made it out of the first phase of this battle, and now I have to go into the second one? No. I'm glad you used the right. word boss, because I think about that a lot at, at video games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking specifically, like, Final Fantasy-esque, kind of, you hit that point right before a big battle, and you know that it's going to be a hard one, because you had that little save point, and you go into it, and you're like, oh, this is going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> This battle makes me really wish that the last episode of Voltron Defender of the Universe had been more like this. I'm, I'm talking about Fleet of Doom, where that means the first time we ever saw a combining Robeast and Lotor was in control of it. And it fought both Voltrons, Lion Force and Vehicle Team Voltrons. And it had the potential to be so epic. Now, it was awesome on its own because... The sheer spectacle of two Voltrons side by side against one combining Robeast, that alone was huge at that time. But seeing this prolonged battle and this, I mean, it's so epic and it just, it's edge of the seat from start to finish. I really wish they would have done something like that back in Fleet of Doom. But again, it was epic in its own way. But man, that would have been so cool. At one point, they, they do back him into the corner and they're firing on him and they think they may have gotten him at least. Lance thinks they got him when they fired uh, Hunk's big gun at him, but then he just disappeared. And we have no idea. Lotor actually saw them setting up Hunk's shoulder cannon, and he was punching in a few things on his console, and boom, there he goes. He just starts disappearing, and we don't know how that developed, but Alora lets everybody know. How did he do that? Alora says, yeah, I learned a little bit about that on Orion, and I basically did that. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, gang. Yeah, it's my fault. Which, again, kind of plays into that conversation that she had with Lance, like, a little earlier. Like, it, it's kind of one of those moments where it's like, yes, she recognizes that she gave Lotor this knowledge, but from having that conversation earlier and being able to compartmentalize that, Instead of being overwhelmed with guilt, she immediately shuts that down and comes up with a solution, which right. I feel like if, if she hadn't had that moment of being able to really address that and have someone support her and really help her like work through it in in some way, like it would it may have been more difficult for her at this point to being able to like like step away from that and just instead be overwhelmed with this sense of of guilt. So again, you see the impact of of what Lance actually managed to do when he recognized in Allura that she was not okay. And so it, it basically empowers Allura to like kind of take a step back and be like, okay, this is the situation what do we do now? And I think that was really, really, really great for me because I'm like, okay, it just helped her push through that moment. And yeah, it leads to this, which is really cool in that she then applies the knowledge that she does have to Voltron. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they get into the uh, the quintessence field with the help of Alora. Yeah. And go after... Lotor, who admits that he underestimated Alora and didn't think she'd be able to do that. But once they get in there, they realize how much the quintessence is affecting them. 
then Alora gets the idea that, well, let's just give Lotor all the power he wants. And she's able to get the, the V that's in the chest of Voltron to just push out all this quintessence at Lotor. Yeah, yeah. that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty cool. Because it is ironic that... that the one thing that he wants the most, power, is what, I don't know about destroyed him, but uh, certainly uh, knocked him out. Yeah. For now. Yes, for now. We obviously think there's more with Lotor going on, but uh, the the thing about it is, is as you see him coming through that that big bright white beam of quintessence, he's trying to get at Voltron, and there's just nothing but loud screams and screams and screams coming from AJ Locasio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't he say he did like two days there where he had to go through that? Oh, geez, yeah. Mm. And the visuals are awesome too, aren't they? I mean, yeah. You know, the closer that the Robies or the whatever that is, the Lotor robot, the Syncline, whatever, gets to Voltron, it, it is more and more engulfed in the white light to the point where at the end, it almost looks like it's going to be ripped apart. Mm -hmm. And it's so intense. The light, the the screaming, the sound, it's it's awesome. Yeah. And then they're able to get out of there. They have to get out of there. And Alora wants to go back. And, and get Lotor, but they have to get out of there real quick. Which, again, is that juxtaposition against Lotor himself in the, even though he's done what he's done, she's still not willing to sacrifice a life on that. Oh, well, yeah, that goes back to Alora back in uh, the third dimension. Yeah. Where Lotor and Hagar were stuck in a cave, and what was the dragon Voltron? Black Draco. Yes. Uh, that was keeping them at bay, and they were asking for help from the Voltron Force, and Alora and Keith agreed that they should help them. Right. And Lance was like, are you kidding me? Why should we help them after all they've done to us? Keith and Alora are just like, you know, you can't leave someone behind no matter how evil they are. Right. And of course, uh, it, going back to this series, back to the first season when Alora talks about the Paladin Code, which is to help anyone in need. And of course, at this point, Lotor, uh, nasty though he is, he's in need. Yep. But we have a feeling we're, we're going to see him again. And at the end of this episode is, is where they have to fix all those time rifts that Lotor had created when he jumped in and out and the only way to do that in Karan's mind is to explode that teledav which will basically suck all those time rifts into it and you know like a like a black hole yep yeah so the sad part is them actually moving all their stuff out of the castle ship and into the lions I am amazed that Pidge got all of her junk into Green Lion in that period of time. <laughs> yeah. You look at that room and you're like, how? <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention was that we saw the caterpillars coming out of the room with her. Mm -hmm. The ones from the, the trash nebula. Yeah. And we haven't seen them since. They're probably asleep somewhere. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> they're, just, they're just taking a moment, chilling. You know, it just seems like every time they mention the pets on the ship, they mention the cosmic wolf, Kaltenecker, and the space mice. And I never hear about the caterpillars. 
Yeah, but what do they really do? I mean, they helped her move the satellite dish around in the trash nebula, but other than that, they just kind of float around. I, it might be interesting to see what they do when no one's looking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, until the to this point, what do they do? They look cute. They say manamana. <laughs> <laughs> like Josh Keaton did with us on the podcast. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, that's you know almost the end of the episode. We have one more thing to take care of. Oh yeah, that little uh, uh, Shiro thing. The Shiro thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after they have no castle ship and they only have the lions, they find a space to land the lions. And Keith tells the story about how he, you know, was able to connect with Shiro's essence through Black Lion, and immediately, you know, Lance starts crying. He he just he can't believe that, you know, he had a chance to, to help Shiro and he didn't. And that makes him really sad. But then Alora knows what to do. And she goes over to Black Lion, pulls the essence from Black Lion, consumes it into herself, and then is able to transfer it to the, the Shiro clone body. Yep. And then we see Shiro's hair turn white. And then he wakes up. Yeah. I actually had the opportunity after this episode to talk to Lauren and Joachim, and I'd been really interested to be like, okay, so now, like, do we still have, like, the clone Shiro and the Shiro that we originally knew, like, the original Shiro fighting over this body? And what they had said is essentially no inputting Shiro's soul into that body. It basically merged the two, and there is now just... Shiro. Yeah, it's it's not like one killed the other or anything like that. Yeah. All the memories from what happened with the Shiro clone came into the Shiro essence. So now the new Shiro knows everything that happened while he wasn't there, while he was still the essence of Shiro in Black Lion. He knows everything that happened with the Shiro clone now. Yeah, most importantly, he knows how cool Monsters and Mana is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to be a paladin again. <laughs> well, you know what? I he might be thinking that right now. Well, actually, he's probably just thinking, "Oh, I just don't want to rest." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's gonna nap right here. <laughs> At the end of the episode, they ask the question, "Okay, so we we just have us and the five lions. What do we do now?" Then Pidge tells everyone, "The only." place that there's plans for another castle ship is with my dad and then they realize we have to go home yeah and therein ends the season with that cliffhanger setting up the entirety of the next season which basically centers around that journey home and making it there basically because they don't have the castle of lions anymore they don't have the ability to create wormholes, so that's that. They have to, they have to make it back the old-fashioned way, which is <laughs> a good old lion road trip. <laughs> nice. So before we close this out, I do want to comment. And I, I think I said this back when we first touched on on season six. This episode, the ending of this episode, gave me a major Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock vibe, where in that film. 
Kirk and his and the crew sacrifice the Enterprise. They turn death, the death of the Enterprise, into a fighting chance to live, which is what has happened here with the Castle of Lions. And then at the end of that film, a Vulcan priestess, I believe her name is uh, Talar, transfers the essence of Spock, which had been in the consciousness of Dr. McCoy, into a new version of Spock's body. And they fuse together, and Spock lives again. And McCoy's never the same after that. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, really, the relationship between McCoy and Spock uh, changes pretty significantly after the after that movie mm-hmm. for the better. But anyway, th- this uh, episode really gave me a Star Trek three vibe, and I say that in a good way because it, it took some of the the better moments of that movie and really uh, uh, incorporated them into the Voltron narrative. And I don't know if this was a deliberate uh, creative decision, but whether it's coincidence or by design or just, just sheer inspiration, the end effect here in Voltron is amazing. And it's so cool to see Shiro wake up again with you know the Shiro we know and love the Shiro we had grown to know and love until we learned to fear him when uh, Hagar flipped on the crazy switch uh, this new Shiro is is back and uh, is destined for greater things as we'll see next season right so going into season seven by the way we were at San Diego Comic-Con and we knew we were going to get to see the first episode of the new season we got to see the new episode but Before we saw it, Joaquim said that there will be some revelations in this episode. We didn't really know what he meant, but we, you know, a lot of people had, you know, faint ideas before this thing started. And then once this thing got going, then we realized as soon as it was over what he was talking about. And of course, one of the questions after they came back from viewing the episode was based on what had happened in the episode. And then Lauren announced it you know, exactly what was going on that Adam was Shiro's significant other. Mm -hmm. And of course, because they felt that, you know, a crowd of over 2000 people wasn't going to keep their mouth shut for very long. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly not with something like that. (laughs) Right. The, the social media team for Voltron said, okay, we got to announce this to the world and let everybody know about it. So, The only people really, unless you're not paying attention to social media and stuff like that, and you go into season seven not knowing anything, Mm -hmm. great, you're going to get the the same revelation that everybody else got. But if you're paying attention to social media and you pay attention to anything that happened at San Diego, then you already know going into season seven what happened. But for the people that got to see this first episode not knowing what was happening... That was a good way to get it. And Greg, you had said that when we talked about it in in uh, our SDCC coverage mm-hmm. podcast. You said you were so glad that, that we got to hear it that way instead of them announcing it before we saw the episode. Right. Yes, I think that was a very tasteful way to do it. It is very easy to turn a revelation like this into something blown out of proportion or, you know, media hype for the sake of hype. But I think by introducing it through the episode itself, I think that was a, a very effective and, and I just think it was a, a, a very classy way to do it. What do you think, yeah. Donya? Yeah, because the way that they did it was that they allowed the episode to stand on its own merit. 
Mm-hmm. And what they did afterwards then was essentially just clarified what everyone was thinking. It was like, yes, this is actually what we intended. This is what we meant. You, like, it was more confirming what they just watched and reassuring people that, yep, you did actually see that. And this is actually what you you saw. The episode, like, stands alone. Like, it it is what it is. So it was just a really nice way of doing it. And... It basically just when all the revelations that you get in that premiere episode, when you go back and rewatch Voltron from the start, it changes so much in every scene that Shiro is in, particularly in the first two seasons. Hmm. How can you give an example? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, you know, you not only learned the, for example. He was queer, but like from the fact that you know that he has this condition that means that eventually he's not going to be able to fly anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, when he has that conversation, for example, with Keith after he's been injured and he's like trying to set Keith up on this path of like taking over as leader, that now has a double meaning in in respect of like he's not just talking about if he doesn't make it out of that moment, he knows that his time is ticking down anyway. And equally in him stepping up to save Matt, you know, when you stop and think about it, it's like, oh, he knew that, you know, his time was limited. And so he steps in to save Matt. It's It just adds this whole other level to everything that Shiro does. Mm-hmm. Like, everything he was doing before was still already, like, incredible. But it just gives it this whole other meaning once you know these things from the Season 7 premiere episode. And that was something for me that really fundamentally changed the and has changed the way that I viewed the show I started going back and like picking out like key Shiro episodes and going back and and watching them because I was like, oh, I wonder how this changes how I feel about this episode where I'd already been quite connected and emotional about it and then rewatched it with that knowledge. And it just changed entirely how I was watching the show. And it's just really interesting how something like that just adds this whole other layer and level because they added that in. They knew when they were making those episodes, that's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of like, once you finally get that reveal, you get to go back and see those moments as they were originally intended. And mm-hmm. it's just it's just incredible. Yes. Yeah. So from this point in the, the podcast, I just want to let people know, we are going to be talking about season seven. If you've already seen season seven, great. You can go along with us. If you haven't seen season seven yet, you might not want to listen to the rest of the podcast and 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 listen to our our season seven review here. So, you know, we're just putting out this spoiler warning right now for those of you who haven't seen season seven yet. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> That's my disclaimer. If you're following along with us and and you hear something you didn't want to hear, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> So season seven, in in my mind, uh, it it follows two, you know, different paths here. We've got the road trip home, and we've got what happens after we get to Earth, mm-hmm. and 
in my mind, if they had gone the first six, like if they had broken this up like they had done the previous seasons and had done a six and then a seven, uh, they would have stopped after six with this season at the end of The Journey Within, and they would have started the following season with The Last Stand Part One. Um, I really think that's where they would have broken it up if that's the way they would have done it. But I like the idea that they gave us all 13 episodes. Yeah. What did you think, Donia, about a 13-episode drop versus the the smaller drops that we've gotten recently? It worked so well for this season. And I think that the split probably wouldn't have worked as successfully as it has in other seasons. Because the first six episodes are so... Not gentle, but like the pacing of it is so kind of slow and kind of there is some urgency to it in that they want to get to earth uh but like there's a lot in it that you know you you don't have a lot of voltron you don't have a lot of the actual lions so you have this sense of like it's just that journey that slowness and i think ending it with the journey within while that is a, a great episode i love that episode <laughs> uh, i don't know that a split would have worked there because it didn't feel like a good place to end a season yeah um, yeah you're right but it felt like a really good lead-in to the back half of the season so i think the 13 episodes taking the season as a whole really works they even got to the point where uh, Karan started playing Earth type car trip games. Mm. I spy with my little eye. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, like the whole road trip was was so good, and they threw in some like surprises there as well. Just everything in those episodes was like really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but like for me, where this season truly, truly shines is in the back seven episodes. And those seven episodes, I would find it very difficult not to watch them all together. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd find it really hard to just jump in and watch maybe one or two episodes mm-hmm. from those seven. I feel like very much in terms of how Voltron has worked from from the first season to now, those seven episodes are basically one giant arc that you have to take as a whole because it's basically a movie in itself Mm -hmm. and it's so cinematic and it's so incredible how they told that story because it all just flows into one and i think it's probably one of the strongest story arcs that they've told and it was really surprising to me as well because so much of it is spent without Voltron and without the lions and when you start seeing that I was like oh this is so different from anything that they've ever done on on Legendary Defender like it was such a a risk to take but it paid off in such a hugely satisfying way for me particularly the first two episodes so the last stand part one and part two those two episodes were incredible. Like, I loved those two episodes so much. It was interesting to see things from other people's perspectives, other than the Paladins or other than the Galra. You know, we've seen so much of that in the rest of the seasons. To see everything from 
earthbound people's perspectives uh, just completely changes things. Yeah. Yeah. You got Iverson, you've got Sonda, you've got the four, uh, what are they called? The MBE pilots. You've got Lance's sister, Veronica. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. And the other thing was, like you said, not having the lions, you know, let's leave them on Saturn and we'll, we'll get to them later. I was wondering how were they planning on getting to them later? <laughs> yeah. You know, and of course the answer came to us, but, uh, you know, I was just thinking for a while there, like, how are they going to get back to the Lions? <laughs> it, it sure did take uh, Shiro and uh, Sam and Matt a long time to get to Kerberos. They would, <laughs> so what's it going to take them, six months or something to get to Saturn, to get the Lions? <laughs> yeah. So I was glad that, number one, Alora had that thing in her tiara. Yeah. Yeah. To help Shiro with his arm. The crown jewel, yes. And number two, that Koran still had that diamond-shaped crystal that was left over from the castle ship. <laughs> yeah, we actually didn't mention that during our review of that episode. But yeah, the, the castle collapsed into that uh, crystal that in this season they refer to as the infinite mass crystal. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought to myself, uh, how is it that Koran forgot he had that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I forgot I had this. How is that everyone forgot that he had it? <laughs> it's not like it was a secret, you know what I mean? Yeah, but uh, it was amazing how well things integrated once Alora used her crystal and Karen used his crystal, just how well things worked after that. Yeah. Yeah. I just wonder if they could have powered the MBEs with Folgers crystals. Which is, of course, is a brand of coffee here in the States. But, uh, you know, in a pinch, maybe they could have done that. Maybe not. <laughs> and we've secretly replaced today's co-host with somebody else. Let's see if Greg notices. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, hello? <laughs> anyway. <sighs> uh, okay. So what can you tell people that are listening to our podcast right now? is your your main feelings about season seven how it sets up for season eight and the final parts of the series gosh i mean it really took the story in a completely different direction and that's one thing that i will say about voltron is that it's always been really good at reinventing itself every season you know, it takes little bits of what has come before, but then takes it in a direction that maybe you're not entirely expecting. Like in the feud? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was not expecting some of that. Like that that episode was great. I like had so much fun with that. It was so funny. But yeah, the obviously the cliffhanger ending really sets up the primary kind of like mystery almost for the for season eight because obviously that final battle you find out what exactly powered that and so they then have to figure out what on earth is happening what's gonna go down with that what they're gonna do and is there more from like is there more from where that came from you know in your eyes is is it your idea that the Altaian that was there at the end yeah. was from the alternate universe? I think so, because we lost sight, or we have lost sight of Anerva and Hagar quite significantly. She disappeared in the showdown with Lotor after Lotor 
turns on her and uh, Aksha uh, shoots at her, she just disappears. Right. We don't hear or see from her again. Was your first thought with it when you saw this thing that was able to pull quintessence from Voltron, did you think that that was Hagar at the time or did you think it was something else? I thought it was something that she'd sent. Ah. So I thought that she was connected to it. I didn't know that maybe we might see her before the end. Because obviously she was at one point also connected to Sendak as well. But Sendak, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be operating alone at this point. But we don't know that for certain. We don't know that Hagar or Hanover hadn't actually sent Sendak to Earth. Right. So that would make a lot of sense if she also sent the Altaian-powered Robeast as well. We also didn't have the sense that just because you defeated Sendak doesn't mean that the Earth doesn't have any more threats. Yeah, and that's boy... Right. Morvok might attack. Because that's not the way this, this show has worked from the beginning. Yeah, and boy, what a threat they faced this season. There was a real sense of loss throughout it. And at multiple points, I didn't think that everyone would make it through. And everyone didn't. Like, that initial last stand two-parter, so many... Like, when you stop and you step back and you think about it, so many people died. Not just in that, like, first wave attack where the garrison sent people out, but you hear about, like, the associated garrisons across the world gone right you know whole cities gone right you know (laughs) like and the only place on earth was the part that had the particle barrier that was safe yeah so that first wave of, of attacks seemed a lot like independence day when they sent out that squadron to go after the ship and one by one you started seeing you know ships go offline 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 and the president's yelling, get them out of there. Right. Then they're all gone. Yeah. And for me, that really set up that entire back half arc. Because when you see that, you realize, oh, the paladins are going to get back to Earth. And there is still going to be an Earth to come back to, but it's going to be so different from what they're expecting. You know, they're going to fight and put up a fight as much as they can. But that really kind of set into like motion that idea of the garrison not being prepared, despite having the knowledge at their fingertips, thinking that they know better. And there was that whole sort of inner garrison politics and fighting and vying for power and trying to have power over each other which essentially is what led to so much loss of life. And also the ruthlessness of the Galra when they are embarking on an invasion. For me, it really, really showcased how the Galra had actually managed to enslave so much of the galaxy and the universe because they have a strategy. They know how to conquer a planet. They know how to wipe people out. And that's when you get that very real threat, that very real danger, and realize that you're not going to come out of this unscathed. And Earth is, for all intents and purposes, when the Paladins come back, like almost post-apocalyptic. 
And it really changes that feeling that you might have had about them returning to Earth, which prior to this was like, yay, they're going home, they'll see their families, it's going to be really sweet and really lovely. And suddenly it's flipped entirely on its head. And it was just one of the more powerful stories that they've told for me. And if they hadn't, you know, explained, you know, exactly what was going on in the first, like, five or six episodes, where you find out that when they had that fight with Lotor in the quintessence field, that basically after that, they come out and, like, how many, three decaphebes have gone by? Three decaphebes, yeah. Yep. And people knew nothing about what had happened to them. They thought they were dead. Yeah. So... That's why we saw in the trailer Hunk saying, so everybody thinks we're dead. Things had changed for Aksha and Zethrid and Ezor, and things had changed for the Coalition, and things had changed for Earth. Yeah. And Commander Holt was expecting Voltron to show up a lot sooner. Yeah, and yet. (laughs) And yet, they did not. And that's where we end up, you know, with those seven episodes in the back half of the season, you see that, like, the time that's passed when you're on Earth, from when uh, Sam returns through to the Paladins arriving at the end of, like, The Last Stand. But you see that passage of time because they actually marker it on the screen, telling you, you know, mm-hmm. one year later or four years before and, and stuff like that. And you're like, they're going, wow wow, when you realize how long they've been fighting the Galra before they actually make their last stand in the first place, you realize like how dire that situation has become. Right. And yeah. And here come in the paladins with the strongest weapon in the universe and they can't use it. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been holding out hope for Voltron to return and it's not what they're expecting. Mm Mm-hmm. And that then also upsets any kind of, like, plans that they had. It just, it was such a well-told story for me. At one point, I felt really bad for Hunk. Yeah, oh, man. A lot of the Hunk stuff made me cry. Mm -hmm. It was a lot. The scene between him and Keith, particularly. Yeah. Uh, I still (laughs) think about that. It's so good. But I still think about that and I'm like, what a friend. That's a friendship that I've like, all, like, and a connection that I've always been really invested in mm-hmm. them exploring more, um, especially since the Weblum episode. Like, I've always really loved that sort of um, banter, that kind of uh, back and forth that they have. And the fact that Keith had that moment, you know, someone who's maybe not the most emotionally open character you know having that really beautiful moment with hunk and hunk equally having that moment to actually let out his frustrations because he doesn't get to do that often no he doesn't he keeps it so locked down and he keeps it so controlled and he always centers other people before himself and taking that moment to just let out that, that frustration and have that moment with Keith of all people and how those roles reversed and how you get Keith being the supportive, sweet, really kind character that, you know, deep down, you know, he is, 
but he doesn't let that out very much. I love how Keith said, so if you ever want to talk about it, and then Hunk starts talking, oh, I guess we're talking about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, Gore the... Keith is a way better friend than regular Keith. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, man. The deadpan timing on that was just so great. Like, yeah. the uh, brilliant moment. Loved it. Yeah. So, yeah, there a lot of good moments in between the characters, and obviously there was... Uh, there was a moment there with Alora and Lance in front of Lance's sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, very private moment. And uh, Veronica's just that like, eh, eh, I think she likes you. <laughs> <laughs> and Lance is like, no, she's just great like that. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, Lance had a good moment with protecting his sister, too. So. That yeah. was good. I also equally liked, you know, he's only just got back. He's seen the Earth is in peril. He really wants to keep Veronica safe. And that moment between the two of them when they're in uh, the car going on that mission, and he's like, you don't have to, you don't have to come on this mission. Like, I don't understand why. And she's like, oh, that's very sweet and all, but knock it off. Like... <laughs> You can see that that influence on him immediately. Like, he very much respects the women in his life, but he sometimes applies it in a way that isn't always received in the best way. Yes. And so having someone like Veronica, his older sister, be able to, like, readjust that and be like, you know... I get your intentions, but, you know, don't approach it this way. I feel like that's a really good thing for Lance because he's not, he never does anything in a malicious way. He, he very much deeply cares about people, particularly people like Veronica and like Allura and the rest of Team Voltron on the Paladins. You know, he wants to keep them safe. He just doesn't always phrase it the right way, which can sometimes rub people up. A little bit wrong which is where you get I guess sometimes a lot of the friction and the antagonism that there's been sometimes between Keith and Lance you Your know ears are hideous <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know, you've got a lot of moments where you know it turns into friction and it's mostly just down to applying the way that he cares in a way that isn't always received the way that he's intended and so it was just that really nice moment between him and his sister where she, like, recognizes that in him, uh, but, like, redirects it. Like, I really right. liked that moment. Yeah. He had a good sharpshooter moment, too. Oh, he had a lot of great moments <laughs> in this season. This was such a good season for Lance in terms of, like, stepping up. I think... um for Lance and for Keith individually, in like for Keith in smaller ways, um, I feel like, you know, there were bigger moments for like characters like Lance, like Hunk, uh, Shiro, especially Shiro's arc this whole season. Can we just address Shiro the way he's supposed to be addressed now? Captain Shiro. Captain. Oh. <laughs> Captain of the Atlas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Like his entire arc. I think I mentioned in my spoiler-free review that what I felt was that in that premiere episode, in the first episode, 
And in having returned him from the astral plane and putting him in the clone body, he was reborn. And I think that also having everything revealed about him left everyone at liberty to make him the most free and active as he's ever been. Yep. You know, he really could just step into that role in such a huge way. And it just worked so well. Shiro, for me, was like one of the biggest highlights of this season. Like his whole arc through the like seven, like the final seven episodes was just fantastic. Particularly that final battle with Sendak. Like finally getting to see those two show down at a point where Shiro is at maybe his highest point that he's ever been, you know taking him on on in his own terms and being able to actually go toe to toe with him mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that was so great like that battle it's on its own gave the black paladins one a little bit of a run for its money but ultimately i still feel like the black paladins fight for me is like the pinnacle but this one was really close behind for me mm-hmm. and how about pidge's giant leap into her mother's arms that was awesome. So awesome. Oh, man, that moment. Just, yeah, beautiful. Like a lot of the reunion. The reunion with Lance and his family as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, just. When I saw them, I'm like, that, that's his brother, Marco. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know him yet, but I like Marco. Yeah. Oh, look. <laughs> we often do audio sound checks before we record and uh marco polo is a common thing that mark and i do so yep. <laughs> anyway yep but yeah it was it was cool because he had mentioned so many of his relatives by name and to actually see uh, certainly all the people that he named and then some was really awesome yeah so overall what did you think of season seven bold interesting direction took a lot of risks really paid off for me i loved it i am going to make a prediction for going into season eight is that okay yeah of course (laughs) all right so in my mind in the end of season six uh lotor had talked about being the leader of all universes all realities and wanting to rule them all that was his overall game plan i think with the quintessence and everything but I think there's uh, some some players in the alternate universe that came into our universe. And um, I think that the, the Voltron coalition, uh, the rebels, everybody is going to come full circle. Uh, we're going to have to deal with Hagar. We're going to have to deal with Lotor and whatever alternate universe, you know, people have, have come together. So whether it's that same evil Altaians or whatever that we had met before, or if it's different. But um, I think there's going to come a thing, like you remember the end of the Harry Potter series where everybody was fighting at the end there and whoever was left was left? Right. We might have something like that at the end of all this. Oh. Hmm. Oh, I don't like that plan. (laughs) Now, maybe because it's a TVY7 show, maybe we don't have as much as I'm thinking as Harry Potter, but, you know. Well. All those coalitions and all those people, all those characters that we saw that came together at the end of this season, I I think are going to have to work towards the end of next season. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but there were several, like, explicit deaths on screen this season 
that beyond a shadow of a doubt were deaths, not only in like the first two squadrons to go out against the Golra when they initially invade, but you have Admiral Sander and you have Sendak at the end, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, they all like died. There's no getting around that. So I feel like they've set that tone of being able to show it. Yep. So I feel like, you know, nothing's really off the table anymore. Yeah, that's true. And hopefully we don't have to have another uh, end of the series funeral memorial service kind of thing. Mm. that a lot of people were thinking when they saw the image of that that it was shiro and it wasn't it was the admiral and all those other pilots and half the earth probably yeah it it was oh that's all yeah well at least it wasn't shiro (laughs) well that's already happened before in infinity war so everybody's used to it by now (laughs) half of everybody perishes yeah good point (laughs) that final speech though that shiro does wow got a little choked up there yeah that was a good speech yeah good speech so did any of you get a robotech vibe from season seven? Oh yeah the final battles yeah. oh my gosh yeah. the atlas taking on all the surviving people from uh the garrison base uh was very reminiscent of uh from the macross uh anime adapted into the macross saga of robotech when the sdf1 took on the survivors of macross island mm-hmm. And then, of course, the uh, the the transformation into that ginormous Atlas robot, Atlas Tron, Shirotron, whatever you want to call it. Yes. I uh, think my first reaction to that was, oh, wow, it's big. <laughs> like, just, right. it's big. Wow. It's freaking huge. Yeah. yeah. And even the, uh, the memorial at the end where Shiro's given the big speech, it, it's somewhat reminiscent of... Uh, the one of the earliest episodes of the second Robotech saga based on um, the Southern Cross anime, where uh, they're talking about all the people who had given their lives during the Macross era war, like uh, the Bridge Bunnies and uh, and so many other people who had died in Robotech. There, there's definitely a, a Robotech vibe here, which is uh, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah, yeah, some people were even saying that there was a little bit of a Star Blazers vibe too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if any of you caught that either. I've never watched Star Blazers, so I can't really comment on it. But I definitely have watched Robotech. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I I think we're going to come to a closing spot here. But I want to thank you, Danya, for joining us here on the podcast again. Not a problem. It's absolutely my pleasure, as always. Always happy to come on and talk to you guys about Voltron. It's nice to have an outlet for it other than writing. No doubt. And of course, we look forward to seeing your stories about season seven reviews and interviews and stuff like that. And of course, uh, we're going to be covering that on the podcast as well. Amazing. Yeah, no, I can't wait to get some of them out. I've got um, possibly by the time this podcast has come out, part two of my interview with Lauren and Joaquin will probably be up. And then I should have one with Josh Keaton coming out. not too long after that, maybe the Monday following uh, the season, I'll probably have that one up. But I'm I'm in uh, Norway over the weekend. Okay. So, yeah. So it's kind of one of those moments where I'm like, hmm, I don't know when I'm going to get the time to transcribe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get close to somebody who's got the name of Sven, let us know. <laughs> nice. I will do. <laughs> And if you uh, 
should need any medical help. Obviously, we hope you don't. But if you do, just go to Space Hospital. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it. We finished up our Season 6 reviews. We did a little preview review of uh, Season 7 here. And we're looking forward to everybody's reactions to Season 7. And then, of course, eventually we'll we'll get back together again in New York. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we can't wait to get there. So we're excited about season seven, but, you know, we're still thinking about the fact that season eight, when it comes out, is going to be the end. So we, we still have that in the back of our mind, but we're so excited because this is still an awesome, awesome show called Voltron Legendary Defender. And of course, it's an awesome franchise called Voltron. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. When we're thankful that you joined us here on the podcast, and we'll see you all next time on Let's Voltron! Mm-hmm.